Please be seated. And good morning again. So if you've been paying attention, our man Luke has been on something of a roll these past few weeks with increasingly challenging texts that serve as something of a splash of cold water on the comfort of our late summer Sunday mornings. Last week, Luke challenged our materialistic nature, urging us to keep our treasure in heaven, not down here where thieves steal and moths destroy. And this week contains probably some of the most challenging words of Jesus' ministry. He says, Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Then he goes on, they will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. And daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now it seems like Jesus' overall message of peace, which we hear throughout Luke, is suddenly being tossed aside. Do you think I, I mean, he says it. Do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but division. You know, you see, we're so much more comfortable, I know I am, with the peaceful Jesus, the loving, gentle shepherd who consoles, supports, and forgives us. So this past few weeks, judgmental Jesus makes me, for one, a little bit nervous. Now, writer and op-ed columnist Ross Dutat in his influential 2012 book, Bad Religion, which I recommend to everyone, suggests that if you aren't mildly confused or even downright offended by some aspect of Jesus' teaching and his life, then you aren't paying attention. See, our faith in general, and Jesus in particular, are full of contradictions. We believe that Jesus was divine and human all at once. Now, how does that exactly work? That God is somehow three as well as one. And that that same God is omnipotent, but also gives us free will to choose between good and evil. That the world is corrupted by original sin, but also because it's made by God essentially good. This is a God that sets impossible moral standards yet somehow forgives every sin, even the deadly ones. That faith alone will save us, but faith without works is dead. The list can and does go on. And even in our statement of faith, the Nicene Creed, which we say every Sunday, is filled, if you take a different perspective on it, it's filled with what you might call crazy or even impossible contradictions. Statements that would get folks to challenge our sanity in any other context, except here. Yet every week, we stand and affirm it. We say things like, begotten of the Father, yet somehow one being with the Father, and incredibly through all things were made. He's made incarnate by a virgin, which, again, how does that work? He experienced a physical bodily resurrection after three days in the grave. This is crazy stuff. That there's a Holy Spirit who somehow proceeds from the Father and the Son, yet is also one with the Father and the Son. So how does that work? How is it one God? See, ours is a confusing, contradictory faith. And Duda notes that pretty much all of the great heresies that we've seen in the church up to those we see now have been some effort to clean up the gospel, to put some kind of rational order to it, 
eliminate the contradictions. So, for example, the Gnostics try to explain away an omnipotent God that somehow lets, lets bad things happen to good people by saying it wasn't really God, but some demigod that's responsible for the sinful creation, so our God has all the good stuff. Later, Marcion tried to abandon Christianity's roots in Judaism by suggesting that Judaism had a different God, one that was replaced in the New Testament. So the Old Testament's God of judgment and revenge was responsible for all the trouble. So thank you, Yahweh. Pelagius, in the 400s, argued against St. Augustine. He said that salvation is worked for, not the result of free-flowing grace. That it gives us something to do, keeps us busy while we sit around waiting, because, to be honest, grace is confusing, isn't it? And then later, the 18th century Enlightenment-era deists, like Thomas Jefferson and the Founding Fathers, they tried to turn Jesus into nothing more than a good role model, and God a master clockmaker, who set the universe on its way and then stepped out, presumably to enjoy the show. And Duthat argues that modern-day heretics, his words, like Joel Osteen in the Prosperity Gospel, attempt to balance the belief that God desires human happiness with the reality of human suffering with a far simpler teaching that God wants everyone to get rich. If you're not rich, you don't have God's favor. So the, true te- the test of true faith is the rewards that, that it reaps for believers here on earth. Again, trying to simplify a very confusing message. He also condemns Christian nationalism that portrays this country as a city on the hill without the responsibility to to follow Christ's example. Without that, we seek to celebrate our chosen status without seeing that Israel, although also chosen, suffered mightily when it didn't follow God's direction. In the book, as he says, the lens of the modern heretic, in the lens of the modern heretic, for many, Christianity has become a license for egotism and selfishness. So think about it. The seven deadly sins get transformed. Pride becomes healthy self-esteem. Vanity becomes self-improvement. Greed and gluttony become living the American dream. All of us pick and choose our scriptures building a sort of choose-your-own-Jesus that miraculously supports our own beliefs, while clearly defining the other side as wrong or even evil. But in front of that, this this week's scripture, it takes no prisoners. So to progressives like me, it challenges my peace-promoting Jesus with one who sows division, or the term he uses in Matthew is, so it brings the sword. And for those who are more conservative, Jesus seems to be tearing apart nuclear family values, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, and so forth. So Dutat argues that Christianity's salvation is dependent on leaning into its contradictions and its creeds. You see, it's in the mystery and paradox of our faith that we learn humility, and we avoid that temptation to oversimplify and allows us to relax into the wonderment. Really, it speaks to what I think is all of our core intuition, the thing we share deep down, that the true nature of the world 
is always going to be beyond our grasp. We're not going to understand. So we nurture the mystery and let it do its work on us. Each week we come together to share the most mysterious of all things, the Eucharist. Somehow the wafer and the wine become the body and blood of Christ. We are joined to each other and to Christ in our eating of it, in our, bring, in our drinking of it, and we're fortified to do the work we need to do in the world. Not for our salvation, but as part of being the body of Christ. And I think we as Episcopalians are a little more comfortable than many at living in the mystery. We don't need to rationalize or explain away what isn't logical about our faith. In our understanding, dinosaurs camp out with Adam and Eve in the, Adam and Eve in the creation, as our stained glass window up here testifies to. I invite you to check it out. We don't focus too much on what's actually happening in the Eucharist. Not worrying about the questions of how Jesus actually appears in, in the bread and the wine. We just let it go. With, we trust in the real presence of Jesus in the wafer and the wine. But still, what to make of this week's reading? You think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. No, I tell you, but rather division. Now, why would division ever be preferable to peace? Now, maybe what Jesus is saying is that it's not prescriptive. It's not, he's not saying this is what you're supposed to do, but instead it's descriptive. He's saying this is what just naturally is going to happen. That when we live a truly Christ-shaped life, our very being and actions will cause division. The early church abounded with this, and it's filled with stories of husbands complaining about their wives' conversion, mainly because they wouldn't do things around the house anymore. In another example, a father urges his daughter to renounce her newfound Christian faith so she can return to her family and avoid persecution. See, even then, families become divided. I think that what Jesus may be urging us to is a, what I'd call a deeper kind of peace. You know how it's easy to gloss over differences as a way of protecting the peace? We do it every day whether it's with our families, our neighbors, even with ourselves. There's something deeper, though. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Not just the absence of war. Shalom means wholeness, wellness, and health, as well as what we think when we say peace. All of those meanings are present in shalom. This is God's peace which passes our understanding. Shalom is a truer, deeper peace that promise of God's peace was part of Jesus' life and messaging all along. Shalom. See, I think Jesus longs to bring a deeper health and wholeness to our world, and the cost of that process will be division. The greater peace will come at the cost of the lesser peace, the superficial peace, the fake peace. Now think about how we deal with this in our lives. The uneasy alliances that, we, that make us comfortable but are in truth part of the false peace. The married couple who avoids the deeper discussions they know is needed for their future happiness. The uncomfortable truth within families whose political views differ, often something like, let's not talk about that. The closeted gay man or woman who buries the truth in order to fit in. And in this country, many of us 
I think, deluded ourselves into believing we were somehow post-race when Barack Obama was elected. Hey, we have an African-American in the office. The years that followed belied the real truth. See, we had buried in a kind of lesser peace, only to surface later through division. We're still working through as we move toward that deeper peace. You see, getting to the deeper peace means facing and addressing our differences straight on. And they're going to be uncomfortable. We may feel separated, divided from our families, and even separated from ourselves. This week's reading is a hard lesson from Luke. It challenges to face that the Jesus we've created in our minds is not the Jesus we're supposed to honor. Ours is a complex, contradictory Jesus. A Jesus who dined with sinners while proclaiming a coming judgment. A Jesus who pushes us just out of our grasp, beyond the rational, and into the mysterious, the paradoxical, the supernatural even. Let's enjoy that. It truly is a peace which surpasses all our understanding. And as we say in the service on Sundays, we say, after we say about the peace that surpasses our understanding, we ask, keep our hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ. So this morning, as we move, from the, move to the liturgy of the table and the Eucharist, I encourage us all to lean into that mystery. Appreciate how it changes us in ways we cannot even begin to fathom, knowing that in that change, there lies the deep peace, the shalom that we seek, that we are made for. Amen.